I would say that we have a customer education first approach, which is sort of the theme for the content that we create, where at whichever channel it's for. Ultimately, our goal is to move the things that customers need to know to be successful with the product, that they need to know whether they're using arrows or not to be successful with improving their onboarding process. How do we take that stuff and move it as early as possible in the journey? Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Content Briefly. I'm really excited for this episode. We're chatting with Stuart Balcom. He's the head of growth at a company called Arrows. You'll learn all about Arrows in the podcast. The important thing to know for this quick teaser is that Stuart's approach to content is slow, thoughtful, and extremely customer-centric. Honestly, I love this conversation. It kind of reminded me of some core principles of content marketing that I think are easy to overlook in a day and age where we're talking about AI and scale and output and efficiency. Stuart really brought some of those foundational things that we should all be thinking about, knowing the customer, talking to them often, giving them stuff they really care about, measuring the right things, etc. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. And if you do, we would really appreciate a rating or review in whichever podcast app that you are using to listen to this podcast. Hope you enjoyed everybody and take care. Hey everybody, Jimmy from Superpath here for another episode of Content Briefly. Really excited to have my friend Stuart Balcom today, head of growth at Arrows. Stuart, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. I have a ton of questions for you. Maybe first though, could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background, some of the things you've done that kind of led up to what you're doing today, which is running growth at Arrows. Sure. Probably differently than a lot of folks listening to this. I don't come from a content background. don't even really come from a marketing background directly. I started out, I guess that's not entirely true. I started out my career, so to speak, at a growth studio or at a, you know, a venture studio that had a growth arm back in the days when A-B testing paid marketing was really exciting. And that was like the thing that people were trying to figure out. Should the button be red or should it be green? Got a little disenchanted with that and shifted to product for a while, which is sort of where I spent a bunch of time pretty exclusively at early stage startups. I was fortunate enough to be at a startup that was sold and I sort of went off and did my own thing. Funnily enough, in the in the customer research space, which led to starting a, a more content-focused startup and sort of really been the, the theme of everything that I've done, whether it's been in the product or growth or a, a marketing role, is that understanding the customer is sort of at the center. So I was off doing my own thing, running a content repurposing service and then joined Arrows in November 2021 as the first marketing hire employee seven, I believe, at Arrows. But yeah, so it's sort of a slightly non-traditional entry point. And now spend my time at Arrows doing all sorts of different things in a, in a head of growth role. Content is obviously a huge part of that, as I'm sure we'll get into, but it's been an interesting journey to this point. Yeah, very cool. And how about Arrows? Could you talk about Arrows, the company, and Arrows, the product? Yeah, for sure. So Arrows uh, was founded in 2020, so it's been a couple of years. Started out as a bootstrapped project by two founders, Daniel Zarek and Ben McFritz. They ran a, a product studio together, and Arrows, or the what became the current iteration of, of Arrows, was sort of one of the product ideas that they explored. Started out bootstrapped, and Arrows is a collaborative customer onboarding platform now built specifically for HubSpot, but didn't start out that way, but certainly started as an onboarding tool. And they realized, I think, relatively quickly into that journey that the customer success or customer onboarding space was very hot, lots of big players, mm. very competitive. So in April 2021, they raised a C round from Google Fund Gradient Ventures, among other folks, and sort of went the more, more venture out. I would say we still have a lot of bootstrap tendencies in terms of sort of team size and the way that we approach things, but have raised almost $5.5 million in venture. 
And Arrows, the product, as I mentioned, is a collaborative customer onboarding tool now specifically for HubSpot. So what that looks like, is sort of a two-sided product. One is a collaborative customer onboarding or collaborative action plan that you would send to a customer. So you know, maybe it's when a new customer is closed and you need them to complete a set of steps to be live or successful with the product. And so it sort of gives them insight into what's happening next, what they need to do, what are the things that have to happen for them to be successful. And then on the other side, it gives the team who is managing that process data and insight into which customers need help, where they're stuck, ultimately with the goal of helping make more successful, happy customers. That's cool. I like that. So if I just make sure I understand it correctly, the customer gets their own view so they can see what's going to happen next. But is it primarily for like when I think of HubSpot CRM integrations, I'm thinking like large customers are like, are these enterprise type deals that need a lot of handholding or like professional services, you know, bringing on a high ACV client, that type of thing? Or is it also, could, could it be for probably not self-serve, but like a step above that as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say that Arrows is is somewhere in the middle and that it looks a lot like a project management tool, but is sort of not a project management tool in the way that like Asana or Monday is where you have right. every single task is going to be hands-on. It might be different for every customer. Or it's going to be mm. require sort of a lot of back and forth on the individual task every time. And obviously, project management tools are primarily built for internal teams. But it's also, to your point, not a in-app onboarding tool, not an entirely self-serve thing. So the, the place where we find the arrows fits is when you have a human in the loop on the, the internal side, you have an assigned CSM, you have an onboarding or implementation specialist. But their goal is really trying to become more efficient and helps and scale that process or scale the number of customers that they can serve with the same team size. So helping the customer self-serve the bits that they are able to self-serve. They can submit information through forms, they can book meetings, they can upload files, all that sort of stuff inside of the plan itself, but help make their time more high leverage by unblocking the customer and them only needing to be involved when they actually need to be. Got it. Okay, cool. That's very helpful. That kind of sets the stage for all the growth-related stuff that I want to ask you about. You did mention team size. How many people are at Eros? We are eight today. Okay. Three on the on the product team, so CPO, CTO, and a product engineer. And we, we split sort of product team, customer team. And then we are head of CS, head of biz ops, myself, head of growth, an AE, and CEO. CEO sort of Daniel floats product and customer team. But that's sort of the breakdown of the team to get to eight. Got it. Okay. The reason I was curious about that is because you run growth, but at a small company, everybody cares about growth. Yes. I think that everybody should always care about growth. That's true. It's a good point. I get that, you know, big companies you have, or bigger companies you have limitations on specialized roles and that kind of thing. But I do think that growth is a absolutely a full team sport. It's pretty hard to drive growth if you try to do it in silos. Yeah, definitely. I'm assuming there's probably some benefits to the team being on the small side, just in the sense that like the work that you do is probably more collaborative. It's easy if you create sales enablement, you can get it in the AE's hands in two seconds you know, versus having a series of meetings. It's fast for sure. That's cool. Could you break down growth at Arrows? Like kind of what are the components of it? Obviously there's a lot of content, you know, like when I, like if I'm, I'm on the website right now and I see under the learn section, I see templates, guides, more resources, a newsletter podcast. And I also see some product related stuff. That right there is a lot. And it to me kind of speaks to like a content first approach, but I'd be curious if, if that's how you view it. And then if there's other, you know, other kind of heavy investments that you're making in marketing beyond just content? Yeah, I would say that we definitely have a content-first approach. I would say that 
mostly because I think it's there's lots of different kinds of content. There's different, lots of sort of different ways that people think about content. I would say that we have a customer education first approach, which is sort of the maybe sort of the theme for the content that we create, where whichever channel it's for. Ultimately, our goal is to move the things that customers need to know to be successful with the product, that they need to know whether they're using arrows or not to be successful with the job of making their customers successful of improving their onboarding process. How do we take that stuff and move it as early as possible in the journey? When you think about it through that lens, yes, we're creating content for top of funnel, like how do we attract people with who are searching for this problem online to find arrows and you know through the content discover that there's a product which can potentially solve that. But at the same time, like we have customers who are trying to solve for a specific thing. How can we leverage that same content to help educate them on just solving that problem? more effectively. Mm. That's sort of really the lens that we've sort of approached everything through. And I think when you start from that perspective, instead of saying, oh, we're going to go run ads, for example, which you know is a, a common channel that maybe people are you know, running paid for in growth. Like we have done that. We've experimented there. And like our approach there was still, we are going to do this to educate people. It's just a distribution channel for education rather than like, oh, we are going to try to look at we spent this and this much revenue was closed from that. It's just sort of, how do we get more visibility or more people who need this education to see it? And it's sort of all the same funnel. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Is the education piece born from a product need or a style of marketing? Are folks familiar with this type of product, meaning like a high-end HubSpot integration that helps them achieve this specific task? Like, is there education needed around that? Or is it more just that kind of the brand prefers an educational style or maybe some mix of both? I would definitely say both. And I think one thing that's important for context here for folks is that, you know, I mentioned pretty specifically as I'm describing the Arrows product, this is a collaborative customer onboarding tool built for HubSpot, right? That wasn't always the case. We actually made that switch in April 2022. When I joined Arrows, it was still a collaborative customer onboarding tool, but we had integrations with HubSpot, we had integrations with Salesforce, but it was a standalone tool that, you know, the teams who were onboarding customers would go to the tool and like, that's where they would do their work. That's where they would see all the data, all that kind of stuff. And what we found was that, which we can get into how this has shifted over time too, but what we found was that teams didn't want another inbox. They didn't want another source of truth for customer data. They didn't want to manage, oh, we have a team siloed over here and this team's asking questions they need to answer. Like, So we went really deep on being CRM-centric and started with HubSpot, obviously. And that's sort of where we are today. But what happened at that point was from an education perspective, we didn't just have, we have to educate people on you know, customer onboarding, collaborative, even having a collaborative action plan during onboarding, but also how do you do this inside of HubSpot? How do you support this use case inside of HubSpot, which is both a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. And really that was a lot of what sort of sparked how we saw a really big uptake in content growth last year was figuring out that people were trying to find content for how to solve for X post-sale customer success use case in HubSpot, and it just didn't exist. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So from an education perspective, we were able to piggyback a lot of that search or that intent and then sort of bridge the gap to, oh, like if you're trying to do this thing in HubSpot, here's a tool which is built specifically for HubSpot. It's sort of night and day arrows versus other tools that maybe plug into HubSpot because of the approach that we took to being CRM-centric and building such a, really building a HubSpot-first product. Yeah, that's fascinating. Is that helpful? Like, is it easier or harder that way? If you're going to create SEO content, it's branded SEO maybe for someone else's brand, does HubSpot's partner team have a have a way to 
enable that for you? Like, can some of that stuff live on their domain, which I'm sure it's much easier to get stuff ranking for? Yeah, there's definitely challenges there. A, because it's HubSpot and trying to rank for anything against HubSpot is pretty tricky. The thing that we have found really helpful there is that one of the first things that we did there was we said, and this is a, it's funny, I just used this format of personal LinkedIn last week, but we essentially asked the community or asked LinkedIn, would anybody want a walkthrough for setting up HubSpot for this use case? And what happened was that we got a bunch of questions back for, oh, I want to, yes, I want to see that, but I want to see this very specific thing that I'm trying to implement. And what we did was we took that and we combined all that answers there into this big resource, but we also went and found all the questions or created new questions in the HubSpot community, which does rank, right? Because it's community.hubspot.com. And the thing that I think was smart in what we did there was we included YouTube videos with every answer, which meant that pretty quickly, even if we weren't ranking, the Arrows domain wasn't ranking, we had the YouTube video in the accepted answer in the second ranked community post, and we got the featured snippet for the video. Oh, nice. That's cool. So we ranked much quicker with video for HubSpot terms than the domain ever did. That's so interesting. This is why I love this podcast, just because we get to get into some of these like nitty gritty details. Like there's a partner play here. Yeah. Clearly, you're kind of like hacking the system a little bit to make it work for you. It's, it's just so much more interesting than like, a, okay, do this much SEO content. Do like one thought leadership post a month. You know, like it's not like a super clear playbook. Yeah, I'm probably going to get crucified for saying this, but like <laughs> I'm, it'll be two years at Arrows in November. We have never had a content calendar. Whoa. Okay. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, you send the, you send the happy customers newsletter every week, right? Yeah. In some ways, does that drive the rhythm of the other content stuff that you do? At the start, that certainly did. Happy customers newsletter was the first sort of, thing that I started shipping consistently. And it started out as sort of, I was writing it every week. It was novel, sort of, it was actually like new content every week. I, I was writing content specifically for the Happy Customers newsletter. But what we found as we made the shift to HubSpot, uh, I mean, I got super active on LinkedIn and we built a pretty good sized following and certainly a very, certainly a very engaged following on LinkedIn around this, so for this job in HubSpot sort of format. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we started doing when it came to the newsletter was we started to flip it a little bit. And actually we would take, we sort of use LinkedIn to test everything. And we would then repurpose that into the newsletter. Interesting. So we would take, this was the thing that resonated most on LinkedIn. Sometimes we would flesh it out. Sometimes we wouldn't, we would just copy paste it from LinkedIn into the newsletter. We sort of started to treat the newsletter more as like, well, we've built this, reasonable sized list. It's a good distribution channel for people who are not active on LinkedIn. It's easy if you're posting on social to assume that everybody's seeing everything, right? And they're absolutely not. And at the same time, we were getting like, oh, like, have you posted about this? I couldn't find it, right? It's much easier to find stuff. If you know there's a newsletter with this subject line, you know, it's much easier to go find stuff in your inbox than it is to like figure out what to search for on LinkedIn and find it. Yeah. Totally. So that's sort of how the Happy Customers Newsletter shifted was it we sort of went from like email first to LinkedIn first and then repurposed everything from LinkedIn to everywhere else. I was publishing at least five times a week on LinkedIn on my personal account. Early on, it was a lot of video and the posts were not a couple of line posts. Like I was writing, you know, six, seven hundred word LinkedIn posts. Oh, wow. Every day. Probably at least three times a week. There was that sort of length. And it was really sort of tactical breakdown of like how to do X. And out of that came Steal This Workflow, which is sort of a format that we 
probably September last year was like the very first deal this workflow post. And that just sort of blew up as a concept. And now people... People in the community, people at HubSpot, they know steal this workflow, which to circle back to the earlier question about like, is it harder when you're so tightly aligned or tightly coupled with a bigger brand? People almost know steal this workflow more than they know Arrows, the product. That's beautiful, actually. <laughs> That's really cool. It certainly has some sort of product marketing challenges. Yeah, yeah. We get a lot of, oh, like you are the HubSpot expert on this topic. Uh, Can you do consulting to implement this for me? Well, no, actually (laughs) we're a software company and like that's not part of the model. But yeah, it it certainly has taken on a sort of a life of its own that both steal this and the just sort of tactical use case content for HubSpot, which has been really cool. And we've sort of started to, you know, figure out other ways to spin that. And we found that the use case driven approach has been really powerful for us. And I think... Largely because we didn't take the we're going to publish X posts a week and we're going to fill this content calendar and rank for these keywords. Like more recently, we started looking at some SEO type stuff, but I never wrote a post for LinkedIn or for the newsletter and was like, I wonder what keywords this is going to rank for. There's actually two things that I want to follow up on that you were just talking through. One is the no content calendar. I find that to be really interesting and sort of freeing in a way because I've certainly come across teams who commit to whatever content strategy they've come up with and they fill up the content calendar, and then they hold themselves to it, which if it's working is great, but it's possible that you get three months into it and you're just creating content without maybe stepping back to check yourself, like, is this the right thing? You know what I mean? Should we be running tests? Should we? What does the feedback say? Is there even any feedback? And sometimes I think that ends up being a time-consuming and expensive way to run a content program. And then the other thing is the newsletter. I find the newsletter interesting for a few reasons. One is that it's branded. It's not like you write content for a blog and then the newsletter is a distribution method. The happy customer's newsletter is branded in and of itself. So it sets a very different expectation that if you subscribe, you will get something in it other than just a blog post and a button to click to it. Right. Could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I think that my guess is most companies don't do that because they think about it sort of the way I described, like we create content, we distribute with email, but also too, you know, once you commit yourself to a branded newsletter, you have to run it. Right. And you have to meet the expectations that you set for people, which maybe that's an intimidating prospect. Yeah, I think that to sort of start with the newsletter question, the way that I approached it was when you look around in the market and you look at like what other companies are sending to your point, it's pretty uninspiring and it's clearly written by a marketer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or written for marketing, right? It's like, well, we sent this thing and it has a button. Our goal really, like we want to see our traffic number go up. Right. It's like, <laughs> how many sessions are we driving from this newsletter? Whereas yeah. the way that we approached the newsletter was, how do I get people to actually consume this and reply? I think it's from Jay Akunzo. I talked to him probably three years ago at this point. And he introduced me to this concept of unsolicited response rate, which is essentially like you can ask customers what they think or ask people what they think. But how many people do that without you asking? Have you created something that is good enough that people are like, Oh, like this helped me so much that I had to say thanks. So like, wow, yeah. You know, oh, maybe this didn't actually solve all of my problem. Can you help me solve all of my problem? Right. And th- that's sort of the approach that we try to take with, with all the content is it's not just us, you know, spouting content. It's we are trying to help you solve this problem. If it does, then hopefully that was a meaningful problem and you're excited about it and you'll like let us know that you solved the problem. Or if it doesn't, we want to know. And I think that's another thing that is maybe a theme or certainly a personal approach that I have with content is 
the content isn't, you know, ship and forget. It's, it's content is a product. This is the first version of the content. If it doesn't solve for the job, then we need to make it better or delete it, right? It's like the same thing with good product. It's not, it's, I mean, it's how you get terribly bloated enterprise software, right? Nobody ever deletes anything. But I believe the same thing is true of content. Like you should ship the first thing quickly and in a way that lets you build a feedback loop to know if it's good or not. And then when you get that feedback, you either go improve it or you change it or you just remove it. It's worse for the brand to have something that isn't on the same level, isn't as helpful as what people actually need to solve the job that they're trying to do because they then don't trust that the rest of the content or the next thing that you send them will be helpful. That was sort of the overarching goal of the sort of thought process behind the newsletter was, I mean, it was a long time before you had any links. I mean, sure, we were probably linked to the hours homepage, but like it was a long time before there was a link in an email where the expectation was like, you need to click this to get the whole picture. It was always, oh, like if you liked this, then like maybe you go check out the product. Or if you liked this, then we wrote this other thing that is too long to put in an email. And I think that that was... It's a big help when you can meet people in the format, like sort of in the channel, in the format that they expect in the channel. A lot of emails delivered on mobile. It's relatively easy to scroll through an email. It's much easier to do that than click a link. And it maybe, does it open in the inbox browser? Does it open in the regular browser? Like the experience of consuming the content is just worse as soon as you make people jump around. And when the goal was, can we get it consumed enough to get a reply? that became pretty important. That's really fascinating, actually. And so it kind of sounds like you're doing the native content thing on LinkedIn as well, where rather than using it as a quote-unquote distribution tool, like you're just delivering in the platform. I'm sure LinkedIn likes that. LinkedIn definitely likes that. Yeah, right. It makes it easier to get in front of more people. I mean, the whole like LinkedIn comments thing on LinkedIn has gotten sort of annoying, but I kind of get why LinkedIn doesn't want people just promoting crap all the time. But readers appreciate it too, I think, particularly in an inbox. Like that's an environment where you could get a lot of value from an email if you just spend 30 seconds reading it versus like, as soon as you see like the blurb with a link to go somewhere else, you're like, I don't have time for that. Right. Yeah, and and we certainly played with the format of that email to try to make it more readable in, especially in a mobile inbox, to set expectations early in the email that this is what is in this email. Like these are the topics that are being covered. Like, is this something that you want to save for later? Is this something that you want to read now? Is this something you want to jump to in the email? How do you make that experience for the audience as good as possible? And the thing we always did, have always done is there is a link very high in that email to unsubscribe. Oh, really? It's not buried at the bottom? Oh no, it's like, I mean, there's a link at the bottom too, but there's a link in the first paragraph, like above the content, there's like an intro, a link to unsubscribe and the content. <laughs> That's fascinating. And what do you find there? I mean, like we we have seen unsubscribe rates sort of jump around depending on what we're sending. But like, if we tell you what is in this email and you don't think it's valuable, please unsubscribe. That is so interesting. I've never come across that before. But there's still, I mean, on the site, I think it says 6,000 plus folks. On the, so there's 6,000 people who get it, see the unsubscribe link at the top of every email and don't click it because they want it. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. To me, that sort of it goes to the same end as like, you're sort of only as good as your worst content. Mm, I like that. If people don't believe this thing is going to help them, then I'd rather they don't get stuck in it and like can't figure out how to unsubscribe and get annoyed and like market a spam than just unsubscribe. And like maybe they see us later on LinkedIn or somebody else mentions to them that like, have they seen this other thing? And that's valuable enough for them to resubscribe. Like, it's easy for people to resubscribe. Yeah. Which sort of to the same thing with, you know, like the link and comment thing on LinkedIn, which certainly we did and like worked well. But I think there's a difference between writing a hook in a LinkedIn post and then asking people to like click to read the whole thing 
because the call to action that we always used on LinkedIn, or I've always used with the steal this workflow stuff on LinkedIn, for example, is here is one complete thing that you can steal. We've published, you know, tens of other things like this. If you want all of them, then go subscribe over here, right? Yeah, yeah. It was never, you have to do this in order to get sort of a complete thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like the trap of the page view. Like if that's the thing you measure, then you'll always be fighting for it. You know, whereas, but when you can take a step back from that and think a little bit more holistically, it makes way more sense to approach it the way you're approaching it. But I think it can only happen at certain companies who feel comfortable with this. I mean, it's hard to measure, right? Like you basically have to be okay with not having good measurement. Okay. At the individual asset level, right? Sure. Like I can tell you our best performing LinkedIn content in terms of impressions and engagements, right? But like, I can't tell you how much revenue any individual LinkedIn posts Drove. Yeah, you could spend probably a lot of time trying to figure that out. And yeah, I've never tried and never will. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's probably good because I, anytime I've gone deep on the attribution, like into that rabbit hole, I always come out of it feeling like I still don't really know. I still feel like the long term approach, we just try to help people and educate and emanate good vibes is the best approach. And wow, I just spent so much time in these data tools and I don't feel like we've accomplished hardly anything here. Yeah, I mean, in terms of measurement, I know this is one of the things that you want to sort of get into a little bit. In terms of measurement, like obviously you can't measure nothing, right? It's not going to fly if you go to the CEO and like, (laughs) yeah, I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff and hope it works. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So in terms of how do you measure when you're not measuring any individual thing, I mean, revenue is obviously a very lagging indicator, right? There's a lot of dependency in there on, you know, close rate. It's a long way downstream. Yeah. So really qualified pipeline is the thing that we, that's the thing that we look at on a weekly, monthly, sort of quarterly basis, like based on uh, like defined ICP, like how many deals are we generating for marketing? And then the two other things that I would say are certainly not quantitative in the same way are that sort of unsolicited reply rate. Like, are we getting people saying the right things without us asking them about the content? Mm, right. I mean, now it's the point, like pretty much every day, certainly on a, every day on average, I get emails that like, thank you so much for publishing this thing. Or like, I'm trying to do X. I got part of the way there with this thing. Can you help me get over the hub? Right. Which is great. Like you can look at that as, oh, like now I have to go do more work but you're doing more work to improve your product of content, right? Yeah. It's the same thing with getting a feature request for a thing you already built. And then the final thing that I would say, which I think is probably the most important or the thing that if you ignore, you start to diverge from what's actually helpful to driving revenue from the business is how effective are we being at reducing the questions that are currently coming later in the journey? Can we get people more qualified, understand more of the product, understand better where it fits. Yeah. Do you have a spreadsheet, a dashboard or something where you're collecting important numbers each month? And then related to that, is there anything that you've tried that flopped and you ended up cutting in favor of something else? Yes, to both. (laughs) All our reporting is in HubSpot. We switched relatively early after I joined Arrows to running everything on HubSpot. So we have sales dashboards in HubSpot, obviously. So it's sort of helpful to be able to see pipeline generated, we can see meetings booked, like all that kind of stuff. But we also are tracking how are those numbers being influenced by marketing? Like, did these people attend a webinar? Like, did they download this particular piece of content? That kind of stuff. But really in HubSpot, we're looking at, uh, as I mentioned, those sort of ICP qualified deals. Is that number where we want it? And are we growing it month over month in a sort of meaningful way? Got it. Things that have flopped. And I think there's to your earlier point about you know, you can set a content calendar and then you feel like you're sort of beholden to that content calendar and can adjust. I think 
just as important as sort of testing things early as killing things quickly. We recorded seven episodes of the Happy Customers podcast. We actually recorded more and only published seven. People loved it. It didn't help the business in the way that we wanted to, and it took a lot of time, so we killed it. That's very interesting. We will probably bring it back into the point about the newsletter having its own brand. Happy Customers is sort of the content sub-brand, and we put a lot of stuff sort of under that brand. But the podcast is one of the things we killed pretty quickly. More recently, starting Q2, we were pretty bullish on workshops, you know, live workshops being uh, a big driver of pipeline. They were great. People loved them. We got a lot of people to them didn't have the pipeline impact that we expect. So we backed off them and we'll almost certainly continue to use them, but in a pretty different way than we, we were. They'll probably be more or deeper in the funnel, more customer focused than sort of new folks. It didn't do a whole lot for list growth, which maybe is not surprising, but we'll certainly reuse those in other ways. We tried TikTok for about two weeks and just hated creating video for that format. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's interesting. The thinking was we were really successful with video on LinkedIn. It was doing well on YouTube, which is funny. Like we've put, I think this is something that will change. We've put essentially zero investment into YouTube. We've just sort of shipped the stuff that we recorded for other channels and put it there. And we have probably hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. Like we don't even have thumbnails on YouTube videos to sort of the level of time that that has got. But that's something we'll, we'll revisit. But yeah, we, we never kept going with TikTok or, or in even YouTube shorts, like vertical video is just not a format that we, it was easy for us to create well or did outrageously well to keep doing. Right. So one other thing I want to ask you about was who writes? I mean, you said you were writing these LinkedIn posts. Are you still the one doing that, writing the newsletter? And, and part of the spirit of the question too is like, for a small team, there's two ways you go. One way is I have so much to do. I need to hire somebody to write. And the other way to go is, I care so much about this writing that I only trust myself or someone else internally to do it. And it sounds like you've chosen the latter. Yeah, and, and not to say that we haven't tried the former. When I joined Arrows, working with an agency, ultimately just sort of, it was very SEO focused and we just sort of shifted away from that strategy and didn't continue with that path. I've hired writers who are I know are great writers, sort of top tier freelance writers with what I felt like were very solid briefs and we just sort of didn't get for the amount of time that we were still spending on that content, it didn't feel like a worthwhile trade-off versus doing it ourselves. Because I think that the thing that is critical for the customer education strategy to work is you have to be educating customers and it has to be really effective at doing that, which is just very difficult for somebody who doesn't have subject matter expertise to do effectively consistently. Totally. Particularly, I feel like at a certain scale, you just have to bring on help in whatever form it takes For sure. to increase the output. But there's something so important about building this super strong foundation of like every piece is of a certain quality. And then if two years from now you decide, okay, we're going to do this or that strategy, it's going to require a hundred posts a year, it will be so much easier to hand off to someone and say, it needs to be like this. If you have a very concrete example and you're always measuring stuff against this strong foundation you've built, it's much easier to scale that. To sort of complete the loop on that a little bit, I think that that's certainly something that we think about a lot is, you know, we're a small team of eight. What are the things that we can do? What are the advantages that we have? Or just what are the things that other people won't do? Which is a question that we ask ourselves for pretty much everything that we do is like, will anybody else do this? If the answer is no, then we should probably go do it. Which means that you start doing kind of wacky stuff, stuff that just it's not in the typical B2B SaaS playbook. 
But if you do it well and execute, it will probably pay off much more so than just following the playbook and doing the thing that everybody else has already sort of done. Yeah. You know what's so funny about this conversation? I was just like looking at my list of questions to make sure it covered everything. And AI is one that I ask most people about. That has not come up in this conversation organically. And I think the reason is because you're not pushing for efficiency and scale. At least that's not that's not what I'm gathering here. Are you finding use cases for it? Or do you find that the approach you're taking is 100% focused on like, understand the customer, give them something useful. If there's a hack here and there that speeds things up with AI, great. But like, it's not going to replace what we do. I mean, maybe I'm assuming too much. I certainly think that that's true. I think the thing that we have had to talk ourselves into a little bit is that there certainly is benefits using AI and content. I think you're going to see us probably, I think we're going to go relatively hard and relatively quickly and sort of a programmatic SEO type approach with AI. Oh, interesting. But we're viewing it as two very separate things. This is content that is for search. Its only job is to get somebody to the arrows domain. Once they're there, we want them to discover the things that we actually wrote as quickly as possible and then continue to create the stuff that only we can create and not try to mix those two things. That's very interesting. I'm already thinking maybe there's a part two that we do. Whenever the programmatic stuff is up and running to kind of report back, I think people would be really interested to learn more about that and also hear how did it go? Yeah. Did it achieve what you wanted to? I'm also curious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Stuart, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been very interesting, sort of taken on a slightly different flavor than some of the episodes we've done recently, which has been wonderful. And it's really cool to hear the way that you and the team are approaching is kind of like very thoughtful. I was going to use the word slow, but I mean that as a compliment, not derogatory in any way. Meaning like you're approaching it in a way that's not like just do as much as we can. We need this much output to achieve Y data point. Like Because you're not doing that, it just seems that you've kind of freed yourself up to be really in tune with the customer and just do what you feel is best, which is a great reminder to all of us, I think. Yeah, hopefully it's, at least the, the hypothesis is that it's more sustainable and more efficient to do it this way. Yeah, I love it. Very cool. Can we send folks to your LinkedIn, Twitter, a personal website or, or anywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I publish pretty frequently on, on LinkedIn, as I as I mentioned. Certainly come say hi over there. Certainly shoot me a message if you have, have questions. Always happy to chat with folks. I do post pretty exclusively about onboarding and, and HubSpot. Well, it's going to be good for folks to observe it in action, I think. Yeah, certainly a little different than what a lot of folks are doing on LinkedIn. And then arrows.to is the website, tons of educational resources there and the product for collaborative customer onboarding on HubSpot as well. Beautiful. I love it. Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. 